Section 35 of The Watergate Report, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 3, Chapter 11 Individual Views of Senators of the Select Committee, Part 8 3. The Political System Watergate challenged the very underpinnings of American politics and the American political condition. It happened in a natural clash and confusion of a free and open system of self-government, the same condition that despite its risks and vulnerability has given us many more moments of magnificence. Nevertheless, whenever the nation approaches a presidential election year, we have especially good reason to recall our founding fathers' warnings against the, quote, danger of factions, end quote. History teaches us that no matter how much a president may insist otherwise, an incumbent begins to measure policy decisions by their effect on his re-election and wields power in pursuit of his most advantageous position. The system is designed to absorb this, but without question there is a line that cannot be crossed if the process is not to be abused. The best way to observe how this happened to our political system in 1972 is to examine it in three component parts the political party the electoral process and the democratic system a the political party political parties in america have their own life and status they were expressly excluded from our constitution yet they have persisted since the nation's first generation the party has come to serve as a link between constituencies and men chosen to govern. They serve a valuable function, drawing competitive forces together to seek the reconciliation so essential to intense issues. When the parties do not function well, individual citizens feel a loss of control over politics and government. They find themselves powerless to influence events. Voting seems futile. Politics seems pointless. The political process crosses the line, and things go badly for America. By any measure, the process that led to Watergate emasculated important party functions. It began with the decision to take the party's leader and his re-election out of the Republican Party and into an independent entity, unresponsive to the checks and balances of party politics. From that point on, the committee to re-elect the president was a political disaster. There was a rationalization of CRP's existence in some testimony to the effect that it was needed for the primaries. Footnote. Mr. Odell justified the need for CRP because the president was but a candidate for nomination prior to the convention, though, according to Odell, there was little doubt the president would triumph. There was a distinct possibility of a challenge from Congressman Ashbrook and Congressman McCluskey. Odell felt it was not proper for the National Committee to work for President Nixon, 
with two challengers anticipated one hearings twenty three end of footnote a number of republican candidates entered the primaries and it was considered unfair to use the republican national committee on behalf of the president this theory ignored the president's massive popularity in the party at the time the fact is that crp remained in operation throughout the campaign long after it would have been proper for the republican party to take over significantly all available evidence indicates that the traditional party organizations at the national level the republican and democratic national committees did not undertake illegal or improper activities in the 1972 campaign after 16 months of investigation the staff of this committee reported conclusively that there was no evidence of wrongdoing directly or indirectly by the republican national committee or its chairman senator robert dole republican of kansas during the 1972 campaigns evidence as to crp's operation is in direct contrast by setting up an exclusive organization concerned only with the president the party was excluded from being properly aided by its titular head the president was well financed and he won in a landslide the republican candidates for congress and state offices did not have similar success in financing and campaigning against their democratic opponents a good example of the tactics that hurt the party was a list of 100 Democratic senators and congressmen, quote, primarily from the South, who had supported the president on the crucial votes on the Vietnam War, end quote, who would, quote, not receive very strong opposition, end quote, from the White House. Clearly this would not have been possible if the party had been involved in the president's campaign. Not only did the White House undermine the Republican Party by supporting Democratic candidates, it likewise undermined the party from within by attacking Republican candidates. A memo from Mr. Haldeman in October 1969 outlined a letter-writing campaign to silence Republican Senators Percy, Goodell, and Mathias. It consisted of, quote, sending letters and telegrams and making telephone calls to the senators blasting them. End quote. A few days later, it was reported to Haldeman that local groups in Illinois had begun sending critical telegrams and letters to Senator Percy. A handwritten note by Mr. Haldeman disclosed, quote, This was an order, I was told, as being carried out, and so informed the President. Incredible as it may seem, the party was writing letters to itself. Leaders of the Republican Party were being attacked by the head of their own party, in disguise End quote. an incident of serious significance was the suggestion by mr patrick buchanan that the florida republican state chairman and the u s attorney general attempt to use a provision in florida law to keep a republican challenger off the primary ballot not because of legal considerations but for political advantage earlier that same challenger had been subjected to a bogus contribution to his new hampshire campaign in the name of the Young Socialist Alliance, staged by Mr. Colson, and leaked to the press to discredit his candidacy. Footnote. Herbert Porter called Roger Stone, and suggested that Stone travel to New Hampshire and contribute money to McCluskey's campaign under the name of an extremist group. Staff interview with Roger Stone, 
pages two through three. End of footnote. Again, a fellow Republican. Negative politics were even taught to the young. Mr. Ken Reitz organized the young voters for the president as part of CRP and designed projects for them, such as the McGovern-Shriver Confrontation Project. This project used the young voters to confront Democratic candidates to generate adverse press and, quote, upset the candidate, end quote. Footnote. In a September 22, 1972 progress report, Ken Reitz, director of young voters for the president, cited daily orchestrated demonstrations using YVP personnel to confront candidates McGovern and Shriver in an attempt to generate adverse press coverage. Memo from Ken Reitz to Jeb Magruder, September 22, 1972. End of footnote. The result was that by September 1972, they had, quote, learned the McGovern organization and or the Secret Service has reacted to our activities. The street walk was canceled, and McGovern spoke in an area that was barricaded off. End quote. The committee to re-elect the president violated the principles of good politics, beginning with its structure and staffing. The separation between partisan politics and government was violated by the participation of White House staff, as well as department and agency officials, in the campaign operation of CRP. Testimony as to the structure was to the effect that, quote, people who were at the White House had influence over the committee, they gave it direction, they assisted it, end quote, and that the campaign director, quote, came from the Justice Department, end quote. The role of the assistant to the White House Chief of Staff, quote, was to try to find out all of the things that were going on at the committee and make Mr. Haldeman aware of them. End quote. Mr. Fred Malick, according to the individual in charge of personnel at CRP, became head of the Citizens Division of CRP between March and June 1972, exercising supervisory control, and had an office at CRP, even though he did not leave the White House staff or payroll until September 1, 1972. Mr. Mitchell at the Justice Department and Mr. Haldeman at the White House quote, jointly made decisions in advertising, end quote. Inciting instances of so-called blame-taking, one witness cited an example when Mr. Colson took the blame for ads of questionable political ethics, whereas Mr. Haldeman was actually responsible. Campaign recommendations from CRP were sent to the Attorney General for his decision as early as July 3, 1971. That particular campaign memo was written by a staff member in Mr. Malik's White House office, with the assistance of an individual in the Office of Management and Budget, and an individual in Mr. Harry Dent's White House office. Footnote. Memo on Grantsmanship, dated July 3, 1971, from Magruder, CRP. It states, quote, Enclosed is a copy of a proposal to ensure that the President and his congressional supporters get proper credit for federal government programs. This proposal was written by Bill Horton in Fred Malick's office with the assistance of Bill Gifford, OMB, and Peter Millsow to Harry Dent's office. If implemented, this should be an effective method of ensuring that political considerations are taken into account. End quote. Odell testified that these types of memos were sent to the Attorney General from May 1, 1971 onward. 
Exhibit One, One Hearings, Four Four Nine. End of footnote. Mr. Mitchell himself testified that quote, he had frequent meetings with individuals from CRP dealing with matters of policy end quote, and staffing of CRP while he was still Attorney General. Footnote. Mitchell testified that he, quote, had frequent meetings with individuals from CRP dealing with matters of policy, end quote, and staffing at CRP while he was still Attorney General, even though, in a colloquy with Senator Kennedy during the Kleindienst confirmation hearings, which was entered into the record, Mitchell had testified that at that time he did not have any re-election campaign responsibilities. Exhibits 74 and 75 consist of a number of documents wherein Mitchell was, quote, exercising his responsibilities as director of the campaign, end quote, in June 1971 and January 1972, while still Attorney General. Four hearings, 1653-55. End of footnote. The hiring of personnel for the committee was, quote, cleared by Mr. Magruder, CRP, Mr. Mitchell, Justice Department, and Mr. Strachan, who would be looking out for Mr. Haldeman's White House interest in the clearance process. End quote. The assistant to Mr. Haldeman was even well briefed on the Liddy plan long before the break in, and in fact was called on June 17, 1972, to alert him to the pending break in. Footnote In his regular political matters memo to H.R. Haldeman, Strachan wrote, quote, Magruder reports, that 1701 now has a sophisticated political intelligence gathering system with a budget of 300. A sample of the type of information they are developing is attached at tab H. End quote. Testimony of Gordon Strachan, 6 hearings, 2441. End of footnote. The temptation and opportunity to abuse executive power thus existed, and the fact that such abuses took place has been demonstrated earlier in this report. For example, the use of government agencies to seek politically embarrassing information on individuals who were thought to be enemies of the White House, which was testified to repeatedly, was certainly facilitated by the presence of White House and agency staff within a non-party campaign committee. These tactics extended beyond the departments and agencies. Mr. McCord testified to phone calls and personal contacts to the effect that there would be executive clemency financial support for the families, and rehabilitation after prison. This was possible only through the facilities of the presidency. Little, if any, of it could have been offered by a political party. A second aspect of staffing that caused problems, and that could have been avoided by using the Republican Party, was the use of personnel that had little or no experience in elective politics. The danger of such a staff can be illustrated in the intelligence-gathering area, candidates and campaign organizations have collected intelligence for generations. In the past, however, there has been something akin to an unwritten code as to the methods and content of information sought. It is interesting to contrast Mr. Ehrlichman's description of discrete investigations as intended to develop questionable facets of the personal lives of those being investigated, checking into domestic problems, drinking habits, personal social activities, and sexual habits. Somehow Mr. Ehrlichman tried to make a connection between the type of undercover prying into private lives of Ulasewicz and his, quote, own knowledge, end quote, 
of members of Congress who, quote, totter onto the floor in a condition of at least partial inebriation, end quote. Not only did Ilasiewicz not investigate the behavior of officials while performing their public responsibilities, but Mr. Ehrlichman offered no evidence to substantiate his, quote, own knowledge, end quote. When Mr. Ehrlichman then testified that it was proper to have ad hoc investigators going into sexual habits, drinking habits, domestic problems, and personal social activities, and then provide that information to the electorate, this senator responded, quote, You definitely have two different concepts of politics in this country, meeting head-on. Significantly, the American people passed judgment on this issue shortly thereafter. A Harris poll exactly two months later reported, quote, By 83 to 8 percent, the public is massively critical about the hiring of private detectives by the White House to spy on the sex life, drinking habits, and family problems of political opponents. End quote. Whether caused by a lack of experience or by a lack of proper leadership, the staff of CRP had a tragic history. One employee recalled that, quote, when you find that a person you trust and respect is in jail for doing something, and that man worked for you, it is quite a serious thing. End quote. It was summed up by Mr. Robert Odell, who testified that during his association with the committee, he came in contact with more than 400 of its national staff, and, quote, it now appears tragically that some of those people have acted unethically. End quote. Indeed, at the time he testified on May 17, 1973, the opening day of hearings, two former members of the staff had been convicted of crimes. Footnote, James McCord and Gordon Liddy. This refers only to employees of CRP. End of footnote. To date, in mid-1974, seven former members have been indicted for or convicted of criminal conduct. Footnote, James McCord, Gordon Liddy, Jeb Magruder, John Mitchell, Herbert Porter, Robert Martin, and Fred LaRue. This again refers only to employees of CRP. End of footnote. This is not what politics should be or has been about. The second area in which CRP took over normal party functions was campaign financing. Money was not properly raised. Instead, it was allegedly raised by Mr. Rebozo, a friend of the president, who had no official campaign responsibility. Money was raised by the president's personal attorney. During the 1970 campaigns, he was directed on three separate occasions by the White House staff to disperse funds from a trust fund in his control at the Chase Manhattan Bank in New York. He successfully took $100,000, $200,000, and $100,000 from a safe deposit box on which one of the signatories was a family relation of the White House chief of staff. Footnote Mr. Kalmbach delivered these funds, left over from the 1968 campaign, to a man he did not know, but could identify by means of clandestine signals at the Sherry Netherlands Hotel in New York. Testimony of Herbert Kalmbach, Five Hearings, 2342-244. End of footnote. The beginnings of the administration's relationship with the Milk Producers Association, according to their testimony, was a $100,000 contribution to the president's attorney to gain access to the White House and to lay the groundwork for favorable treatment in certain specified ways for the milk producers and the dairy industry. Footnote. Mr. Kalmbach understood 
the $100,000 contribution from AMPI in 1969 to be tied to access to the President and administration approval of new price supports for dairy farmers. Affidavit of Herbert Kalmbach to the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Supra. End of footnote. Messrs. Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and Colson, all of whom were senior White House advisors, held meetings to discuss fundraising, including the $2 million pledge from the milk producers. Money was raised by a Secretary of Commerce and a Secretary of the Treasury, all of which would have been unnecessary if financing had been left to the professionals in the Republican Party. The handling of money was equally bad. Large amounts of cash were transferred and used. Secret funds were set up. Financial records were destroyed on a number of occasions. People with no campaign responsibility were receiving and distributing money. Illegal corporate contributions were given to CRP and accepted. Even though CRP represented itself as a presidential re-election organization, it gave $25,000 to a congressional campaign in Maryland. It gave $50,000 to a vice presidential donor in Maryland to make it appear that a vice presidential fundraising event was more successful than it was in what turned out to be an illegal transaction. Mr. McCord's salary from the committee was continued from July 1972 through January 1973. One witness understood that in Governor Wallace's gubernatorial campaign in Alabama, Mr. Kalmbach provided Wallace's opponent with between $200,000 and $400,000. The intelligence activities of CRP were the greatest distortion of the political system undertaken by that committee. The Republican Party had an information-gathering function of a research nature, but it was considered inadequate by the White House, which had become used to the sophisticated technique of law enforcement, national security, and government intelligence. Unfortunately, by combining systems, they weren't able to draw the distinction between law enforcement and politics. As a result, CRP found itself collecting and using secret intelligence from the FBI in the Internal Security Division of Justice. They developed a security unit that burglarized, photographed, and wiretapped that staked out senators' and congressmen's offices and cased the Democratic headquarters. Footnote. This refers to the White House plumbers. Three hearings, 919-924. The surveillance of Alfred Baldwin, first hearings, 396-397, and the aborted attempt of the Liddy McCord team to break into McGovern headquarters, as well as the successful Watergate break-ins. First hearings, 125-247. End of footnote. They planned illegal acts against the Democratic Party chairman, at his residence, and subsequently at his office. Similar plans were made for Senator McGovern's headquarters in Washington, and at the Democratic Convention. Electronic surveillance of Senator Muskie's campaign office was discussed as a future target, according to McCord, but instead an office in an adjacent building was leased under the false name of John B. Hayes. Transcripts of illegally wiretapped phone calls were available to the committee to re-elect. The person transcribing the wiretaps was paid by payroll check from the committee. A secretary on the CRP payroll typed up illegal wiretap transcripts assisted Mr. Liddy in preparing a pass to enter McGovern headquarters, and eventually took part in the shredding of illegal intelligence documents. CRP built a capability to intercept and photograph memos in the Muskie campaign, 
and infiltrated not only muskie's campaign but mcgovern's suite at the democratic convention and senator humphrey's campaign with an infiltrator known as sedan chair crp became a group that had a thirty-eight snub-nosed smith and wesson revolver in its files that it handed out to one of its spies it was purchasing spy equipment from bugging equipment to microfilm machines for viewing its stolen documents that was falsifying credentials and shredding incriminating documents expensive charts were purchased to display plans for bugging mugging burglaries and the like to the attorney general after that briefing liddy reported that mr dean had asked him to destroy them but because the charts were so expensive liddy decided not to it found itself with an arrangement for two attorneys mr caddy and mr rafferty to appear at the second precinct following the watergate arrests when the participants did not return home from their night's work at one point the committee was even instructed by the white house to hire a shaggy person to sit in front of the white house wearing a mcgovern button this could only be matched by the hiring of counter demonstrators for the funeral of j Edgar hoover hardly a political event the committee to re-elect the president not only undermined the national republican party the proper functioning of the democratic party was likewise subverted the intelligence functions previously described were designed among other things to influence the choice of the democratic nominee for president as part of that tactic the illegal or unethical heap abilities that were set up were consistently focused on the strongest contender the early attack was against senator kennedy it shifted to senator muskie as muskie's strength diminished instructions came from the white house to shift the attack to senator mcgovern this included not just intelligence but the so-called dirty tricks operation as well the attempts to undermine the democratic party went beyond the candidates a memo entitled counteractions and dated september eleventh nineteen seventy two noted that depositions could be taken in a civil suit against larry o'brien covering quote, everything from larry o'brien's sources of income while chairman of the dnc to certain sexual activities of employees of the dnc they should cause considerable problems for those being deposed mr dean recalled mr haldeman's telling him that he hoped o'brien would be mcgovern's campaign manager quote, because we have some really good information on him dean believed that he was referring to tax information at that time End quote. b the electoral process a whole range of activities during the nineteen seventy two campaign including so-called dirty tricks were aimed at the voter to the extent that improper or illegal methods were used to influence votes they interfered with the electoral process the task of influencing the final vote for president had its beginnings early in the campaign process it was a complex operation not simply questionable tactics to get people to vote for mr nixon rather its thrust was negative to get people to vote against strong contenders to take away votes from senator muskie in new hampshire mr colson stating that he had the president's approval drafted a letter urging a write-in campaign for senator kennedy between one hundred and fifty thousand and one hundred eighty thousand of the letters were sent out a press conference was staged in support of the bogus campaign along with appropriate advertising all at a cost of some ten thousand dollars paid for by contributors to a republican president not a democratic write-in candidate the president's campaign funds were also given to democratic contenders eugene mccarthy and shirley chisholm along this line there was a project 
to finance the candidate for the Democratic nomination for governor, who was opposing former Governor George Wallace. This was to be financed by surplus funds from the 1968 campaign, which Mr. Haldeman testified that he, quote, requested or approved for funding support to a candidate for governor in Alabama, end quote. Mr. Haldeman also approved, quote, the funding of Donald Segretti, end quote. The story of Segretti and his henchmen illustrates more dramatically than anything else in the efforts of the White House in the 1972 election to subject the voting privilege of American citizens to gutter politics. Whether Segretti had any significant or measurable effect is not the question. It was an example, straight from the White House, of the worst in American politics. It included informers planted in opponents' campaigns, stink bombs unleashed against voters attending a campaign picnic against volunteers in a telephone bank operation, and inside a campaign headquarters, a letter on a replica of Muskie stationery, accusing Senators Jackson and Humphrey of sexual improprieties in the most vile language, flyers inviting voters to a non-existent open house at Muskie headquarters, a flyer advertising a free all-you-can-eat lunch with drinks at Humphrey headquarters, a small plane circling the Democratic Convention advertising Quote, pot, peace, promiscuity, vote McGovern, end quote. Adverse press that forced cancellation of a musky fundraising dinner. Printed cards with, quote, if you like Hitler, you'll love Wallace, vote for musky, end quote. Stink bombs thrown into a campaign headquarters. A forged letter on McCarthy stationery urging McCarthy delegates to switch to Humphrey. A letter on Yorty stationery blaming the McCarthy letters on Yorty. Hired hecklers pickets and informers to disrupt, infiltrate, and spy on Senators Humphrey, Muskie, and Jackson, a false press release with the information that Muskie was using government-owned typewriters and federal employees, not on leave of absence, a series of false anti-Muskie advertisements in the University of Miami campus newspaper, the local Cuban newspaper, and on the local Cuban radio station, insulting the Cuban people, a false press release on Muskie stationery, with the vague stand on aid to Israel, which did not go over well in Miami Beach. A flyer claiming Muskie favored busing was sending his children to private schools. Rats and birds released at a Muskie press conference. A naked woman to run in front of Muskie headquarters yelling, I love Muskie. A flyer falsely advertising the appearance of Lauren Green and Mrs. Martin Luther King at a Humphrey rally. Hundreds of dollars worth of flowers, chicken, and pizzas delivered to Muskie headquarters, a set of invitations to Black Panthers, the Gay Liberation Front, the Hare Krishna Movement, and African diplomats for a Muskie fundraising dinner, a chauffeur for the Muskie campaign, codenamed Ruby One, who would turn over documents being delivered so they could be surreptitiously photographed and eventually shown to Mr. Mitchell, a rented office near Muskie's headquarters to facilitate copying of documents, a group of infiltrators in Muskie headquarters in Milwaukee, Humphrey headquarters in Philadelphia, a government headquarters in Los Angeles, Washington, and Miami, a ploy to get campaign workers to drink beer and skip work, and an operation to switch phone bank call sheets so the same people would be called repeatedly or the wrong message would go to selected groups. This is not to mention similar operations by persons known as Sedan Chair 1 and Sedan Chair 2 and Ruby 2. It was nothing short of a massive operation to deprive the American voter of information about Democratic candidates for president. It was significant not so much as an attack on politicians, 
but as an attack on voters and their opportunity to cast a fully informed vote. Dirty tricks were not the only means used to influence the electoral process improperly. Misleading the voter by official conduct and statements was equally in evidence. This kept critical information hidden from voters when there was a legal obligation to disclose it, thereby preventing a proper judgment of the incumbent administration. The Watergate break-in was called a, quote, third-rate burglary at a time when the White House knew better, based on its briefings and discussions, including a discussion of executive clemency with the President in July 1972, end quote. Mr. Mardian testified that he even complained to Mr. Clark McGregor, who had succeeded Mr. Mitchell as campaign manager, that statements being made regarding non-involvement of campaign personnel were untrue and that he unsuccessfully attempted to brief McGregor about the tremendous exposure of certain people in the campaign. On August 29, 1972, the President assured the nation that an investigation by John Dean had cleared the White House of any involvement. This statement was made in spite of the fact that the President had received no report from Dean and never ever talked with Dean about Watergate. In mid-September 1972, the president discussed possibly unethical out-of-court contacts that had apparently taken place with the judge in one of the Watergate lawsuits as part of a strategy to keep the process of justice from operating. Delay or obstruction of this process again ensured that voters would not have the legal record before them in November. In mid-October 1972, high-level staff meetings at the White House were convened to decide how to handle news reports about Segretti. Even though these participating knew or had access to the full Segretti story, the decision was made to issue tough denials, and what Mr. Richard Moore described as weasel words. The story was basically correct, yet it was denounced as, quote, hearsay, innuendo, and character assassination, end quote. No effort was made to tell the truth. The voters were kept in the dark. Perhaps this tactic was best summed in testimony by Mr. John Mitchell. He was interviewed by the FBI on July 5, 1972, and stated that all he knew was what he had read in the newspapers, despite testimony that he had been extensively briefed about Watergate by Mardian and LaRue. His explanation, quote, at that particular time, we weren't volunteering any information, end quote. His reason, quote, the re-election of the president, this particular president, is uppermost in my mind without question, end quote. One man was thereby elevated above the fundamental principles of this nation. End of section 35. Recording by Greg Giordano. Newport Ritchie, Florida.